Our scripture lesson is taken first from the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis, page 16 in the Pew Bible, Genesis 17, 1 through 14. Genesis 17, beginning at verse 1. And Abram was 99 years old. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and your descendants after you. Also I give to you and and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, and you uh, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any stranger who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house or he who is bought with money, your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has forsaken my covenant. And then reading from the New Testament, Colossians 2, verse 9, uh, uh, page 1,353. Page 1,353, Colossians 2, beginning at verse 9 through verse 15. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. In him... You were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. As far the reading of God's word, in conjunction with it, I'd like to read from the Heidelberg Catechism, page 882 in the back of the Psalter hymn, Trinity Psalter hymnal. Page 882, Lord's Day 
25 and 26. Lord's Day 25 on page 882, the bottom of the second column. It is by faith alone that we share in Christ. Excuse me. Uh, uh, it's uh, 26 and 27, not 25 and 26. 26 and 27, that's my error uh, in the bulletin. Uh, page 883, we'll start with Lord's Day 26. How does holy baptism remind you and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally? In this way, Christ instituted this outward washing and with it promised that as surely as water washes away dirt from the body, so certainly his blood and his spirit wash away my soul's impurity, that is, all my sins. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means that God, by grace, has forgiven our sins because of Christ's blood poured out for us in his sacrifice on the cross. To be washed by Christ's spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed and sanctified us to be members of Christ so that more and more we die to sin and live holy and blameless lives. Where does Christ promise that we are washed with his blood and spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism. In the institution of baptism, where he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. The promise is repeated when Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. Lord's Day 27 on the next page. Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No, only Jesus Christ's blood and Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the water of rebirth and washing away of sins? God has good reason for these words. To begin with, he wants to teach us that the blood and Spirit of Christ take away our sins just as water removes dirt from the body. But more importantly, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are truly washed of our sins spiritually, as our bodies are washed with water physically. Should infants also be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant people, and they, no less than adults, are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. Beloved of the Lord, the last time we looked at the Catechism, we were reminded that the Lord creates and strengthens faith in us by the Holy Spirit through the Gospel and confirms that faith through the sacraments and that there are two sacraments. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so tonight we begin to look at those two sacraments, looking tonight at the first one, the sacrament of baptism. And the first thing that I want to emphasize is that sacraments, both of them, are holy signs and seals. They are holy signs and seals. Now let's break that down. They're signs, they are seals, and they are holy signs and seals. The sacraments are signs. Now, signs are symbols that 
represent something else. They point beyond themselves to something uh, uh, which they represent. For example, uh, uh, the stars and stripes on the American flag are, are symbols. Uh, they're signs. The 13 uh, stripes represent the 13 colonies, and the 50 stars represent the, uh, the 50 states. They, uh, they stand for something. You see them, and, and you think of what they represent, or you're supposed to think of what they represent. They represent the, the original colonies and the, uh, the states, and I, I believe the colors are also representative, but uh, it escapes me what the colors are representative of now. That could be your homework. You can look that up. <laughs> Um, we have we have all sorts of symbols, uh, uh, red light, green light, yellow light, you know, uh, put those three uh, together and hang them over an intersection and red light becomes a symbol. It represents you stopping your car. Uh, you see the red light and it sends a message to you. It says stop. Uh, you can't uh, go through the intersection until the light turns green. If it's a yellow light. Uh, then you're supposed to exercise caution because it's about to turn red. Uh, so judge carefully whether you can uh, get through the intersection before it uh, turns red. Uh, better to be on the safe side and slow down and stop. So those, those colors become symbols when they are put together and, and hung on a sign over an intersection. Uh, they, uh, the cross uh, is a symbol. If you... Uh, put a cross on the outside of a big building, it tells you that that, that building is a, a Christian church. If you wear a little uh, metal cross on a chain around your neck, it's a symbol. Uh, it's, a, it's a sign. It, it's a sign of your personal faith in Christ. It says, uh, I'm a Christian. Uh, at least that's what I think most people uh, mean by wearing a cross. They might wear it as a good luck charm, which they ought not to do. But uh, there are all kinds of symbols. Sometimes I, I check in at a, a motel and I'm given a sheet of paper and I, it says uh, initial here, here, and here, and sign at the bottom. Well, those initials, are, they're a symbol of my full signature. They, they point beyond themselves to something uh, different, something fuller, something bigger. Well, the sacraments also are signs. They're symbols. They point beyond themselves. They have a, a message, like the red light over the intersection has a message. And the message of the sacraments, both sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, is the message of the gospel. They point especially to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, by which our symbols, uh, by, by which our sins are forgiven. Uh, they uh, preach a message of forgiveness. Uh, the water of baptism uh, reminds us of uh, the blood of uh, Christ that uh, washes away our sins. It reminds us of the work of the Spirit in renewing our lives after the image of Jesus Christ in true righteousness, knowledge, and holiness. So these signs are given to us to represent the gospel to us. There are some branches of the Christian church that believe that that's all that the sacraments are. They're just a symbol designed to make you remember what Jesus did. Uh, look at it. Think about it. Remember what he did. Be thankful for what he did. Be motivated by remembering what he did for you. It's a sign to help you remember what Christ did for you so that you are more motivated now to live for him. And that's all it is, according to some. 
But that's not what we confess. We confess it's not just a symbol, it's not just a sign, it's also a seal. Now, a seal is something that's given for assurance. Uh, In ancient times, the king would write an edict to his subjects, and then he would uh, seal it with his uh, signet ring. They'd uh, melt a pool of wax on the document, and he would stick his uh, ring into the wet wax. It would uh, solidify, and uh, people would look then later at the document. They see the king's seal on it, and they know this came from the king. It has his seal on it. Uh, We also have uh, seals that assure us of product safety. I don't know if you're old enough to remember the 1981 Tylenol uh, Chicago murders, but uh, it was a a big event in 1981 when someone went into uh, a store and bought some Tylenol capsules and uh, took them home and emptied out the uh, acetamycin and put in uh, uh, potassium cyanide and then snuck the, uh, put them back in the jar and put it back in the store, snuck it back into the store, put it on the shelf and uh, did it many times and seven different people died uh, as a result of uh, somebody tampering with those Tylenol capsules. Uh, it's called the, uh, the Chicago Cy- uh, Tylenol murders, and to this day, no one has ever been charged uh, with the crime. Uh, never found out who did it, and it also spawned uh, some copycat crimes in other places that also killed more people. Well, we now all live with the the results of that. <laughs> um, I hope that's not. Uh, uh, an omen of the fact that uh, once some b- bad thing happens, you have to live with the results forever. But uh, we now have tamper-proof packaging. Uh, when you open up a bottle of Tylenol now, there's this foil seal that you have to stab hard with a knife to break the seal. And that's, that seal assures you. It's, it's for your assurance that uh, nobody has tampered with that product uh, since it left the factory. Uh, milk jugs uh, have these twist-off caps that once you uh, twist them, you break a seal, and that, again, is uh, a proof that nobody has uh, tampered with the, the milk jug. Uh, all packaging has uh, a set of consumable items has some kind of uh, proof on it, some kind of assurance to assure you that nobody has tampered with that product and uh, is trying to, to poison you. So these seals give you assurance. And that's what the sacraments do. They not only point us uh, uh, to Christ, they not only preach a message to us, uh, the message that they symbolize, but they also assure the believer that what, what the gospel promises is actually possessed by the believer. The outward signs point to an inward spiritual grace And the sacrament is given to assure you, the believer, that you possess that grace, that you possess the forgiveness of sins, that the blood of Christ has washed away your sins, that the Spirit has given you a new nature and is renewing you and building you up. Uh, The uniting of the outward sign with the inward spiritual grace is not automatic, 
Not everyone who receives the outward also possesses the inward, uh, but the inward grace is graciously given to all those who receive the outward sign in faith. Uh, to appreciate them as uh, tokens of assurance, uh, they must always be viewed as coming from God, uh, being administered by God through his servants. And that's why they're also called holy signs and seals, because they come from God. And God has set apart uh, three symbols for use in Christian worship, water and uh, bread and wine are the three God-ordained, God-given symbols that we use in Christian worship. If you'll allow me a little aside here, uh, I'll say that uh, I'm very thankful that the, the elders here have not included uh, other symbols that are found, sadly, in many of our churches. Um, a flagpole here and a flagpole here with uh, the stars and stripes here and a Christian flag there and a little uh, brass eagle on top of the American flag. Um, I know the reason why those flags are there. They, they originated in World War II to honor the uh, members of the congregation who were away uh, fighting in Europe or uh, the Pacific during World War II. And I'm all in favor of honoring and esteeming our uh, soldiers, especially those who gave their lives to defend our freedoms but uh, the way to honor them, the way to esteem them, is not to introduce new symbols into corporate worship and uh, set these symbols in the front of the uh, uh, worship center so that uh, our attention is fixed on them. Uh, God has uh, given us symbols for worship, water, bread, and wine, and those are the symbols that we ought to use. They are the holy ones, the ones that he has provided and they're given to us. Uh, baptism is something that God does to us. It's not something that we say to God, but it's something that God says to us. He, he gives us a message and says, uh, Your sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ. The Spirit of Christ is working in you to assure you that you are becoming a new creature in Christ. Now, regarding baptism... Uh, we say that baptism is the sacrament of initiation into the covenant. When God entered into covenant with Abraham, he gave him a sign of that covenantal relationship. You know that marriage between man and a woman is a covenantal relationship. It is a mutual, mutually administered covenantal relationship, which means that the parties enter into it each voluntarily. Uh, God's covenant is a sovereignly administered covenant where he's in charge and he uh, dictates the terms both for himself and uh, for us and uh, calls us uh, irresistibly uh, by his love into that relationship and makes us his people and then gives us his covenant well, when a husband and wife enter into their uh, mutually administered covenantal relationship, they, they often exchange rings. And the rings are a symbol, a symbol of their love, a symbol of the vows that they have taken uh, toward each other. Uh, they have this symbol that, that represents the relationship. And 
that's what God has done as well. He entered into a relationship with uh, Abraham, a covenantal relationship. And uh, over the course of time, uh, near the beginning of that relationship, he gives him this this sign, the sign of circumcision, which uh, is called both the covenant and the sign of the covenant. Uh, it encapsulates the message of the covenant and can be called the covenant, but it is also especially a sign of the covenant. Uh, at the heart of the covenant was the, the truth that uh, Abraham was righteous. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And we read in the New Testament, in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 4, verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Now notice the word sign and seal. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal. He, he was given this symbol uh, that had a message, and it was given to him to assure him that he was indeed righteous by faith. And uh, uh, what we see God doing is uh, requiring that uh, one piece of flesh uh, be removed uh, to symbolize the removal of his whole sinful nature uh, by the one who was yet to be born. At the very beginning of history, God taught Adam and Eve to put their hope in the seed of the woman, in one not yet born. And the sign of circumcision does the same thing. Uh, it points to someone who hasn't been born yet, someone who hasn't been born who will remove our whole sinful nature. One piece of flesh represents the whole sinful nature, and that one piece of flesh is removed to represent that the one who will be born will remove our sinful nature and make us right with God. Of course, uh, it was a forward-looking sign, looking forward to the birth, to the seed of Abraham to, who was to come. But once the seed of Abraham is born, and we know that that one seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ, uh, Paul makes a point of saying that the promise was seed, not seeds, plural, but singular, pointing to one person, and that one person is Jesus Christ. After he's born, a sign that looks forward to his birth is no longer appropriate. He has been born. And so God uh, gives a new sign, the sign of baptism that looks back. One line, the old sign looked forward to his birth. The new sign looks back on his finished work. Water reminds us of uh, the uh, uh, need to be cleansed. Uh, our guilt being washed away, and uh, it reminds us of uh, the cleaning up of our nature, the renewal of our nature, and uh, it uh, reminds us of the blood of Christ that was shed to accomplish these things. Uh, the Bible says that we are baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The word into means a relationship is established. And that relationship is this, that God the Father makes a covenant of grace with us uh, to watch over us and protect us from all harm or turn it to our profit. Uh, the one baptized into the name of the Son is uh, promised that uh, the Son unites us to himself in his death and resurrection, freeing us from bondage to sin and washing us clean by all his uh, dead blood. And the one baptized uh, into the Spirit is a promise that the Spirit will make real in our lives the work of Christ. Uh, 
A baptism is a sign that this relationship has been established or initiated. Therefore, baptism should only be done once. Baptism should be administered to everyone upon their entrance into the covenant. The sign of the fact that we are in covenant with God. And who's in the covenant? Well, believers and their children. For God said to Abraham, I am a God to you and to your children after you. The covenant community is uh, not just believers, but believers and their children. And so if one is enters the covenant by being born to believing parents or a believing parent, uh, that child is in the covenant and uh, should be baptized without any unnecessary delay after they, uh, that child has uh, been born. If one is not born to believing parents and uh, becomes a believer at later in life, uh, then upon making a public profession of faith, they should receive the message from God in a baptism that their sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ uh, on account of their uh, faith in Christ. Uh, we baptize uh, covenant children because God gives his covenant promises not only to believers, but to their children. Uh, God said in Genesis 17, verse 7, I will be a God to you and your descendants after you. And uh, Peter said the same thing in the New Testament. The promise is to you and to your children. Uh, Jesus says regarding the kingdom that uh, to little children belong the kingdom of God. And Paul, writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14, says that if, even if only one child, uh, one parent is a believer, the children are holy, and holy means set apart and belonging to God, uh, and for that reason ought to be baptized. Uh, because God makes his covenant with parents uh, and with their children, uh, God told Abraham to give the sign of the covenant to his sons when they were eight days old. Now remember, he, Paul tells us in Romans 4, it's a sign of circumcision and a seal of the righteousness which he had by faith. A sign of uh, the covenant and a seal of the righteousness which he had by faith. And though it is assuring Abraham that he is righteous by faith, uh, Obviously, when it's given to children, uh, children who are incapable of believing, uh, it's not a seal that they have saving faith, even though they've never heard of Jesus. But it does mean that uh, they are in the covenant. They are precious to God. Uh, we confess in the uh, canons of Dort that if our children die in infancy, we ought not to doubt their election and salvation because God has included them in the covenant from the time of their conception. And then when they're born, they receive the sign of a, a relationship that has existed uh, from the moment they came to life. Uh, but uh, when those children uh, come of age, they must recognize that they are under obligation to believe, under an obligation to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God has already put his mark on you who have been baptized, and that puts you under obligation to respond in faith to God so that you also might be assured that your sins are forgiven. We ought not to think that our children are automatically saved uh, by the covenant. 
The covenant never saves anyone apart from faith, and apart from faith, the covenant brings curse, not blessing. Uh, God, uh, Christ said to the uh, to the Pharisees of his day, all who had been circumcised, all who were members of the covenant and leaders in the covenant community, that it would be harder on the day of judgment for them than for the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, because they had been given so much more as children of the covenant and seen and heard so much more of the gospel and yet uh, had refused to believe and therefore their judgment will be more severe. So God uh, calls us to himself, calls us into a covenantal relationship and gives us a sign that we are in that relationship and uh, tells us uh, that we should uh, trust uh, in him because of it. We should put our faith in him. Uh, Just a word about... uh, the method of baptism. Uh, this is a, a favorite topic of mine, uh, although it's not the matter of first importance. But uh, many uh, uh, Presbyterian and Reformed believers, such as us, are, are sometimes uh, a little envious of Baptists because they get baptized by immersion, and somehow baptism by immersion seems to be a better thing than to be merely sprinkled. But I want to assure you that sprinkling is the primary biblical method. Uh, You ought to recognize that baptism is not a new invention for the New Testament. Some people think uh, that John the Baptist was the first one ever to baptize anybody. But that's not the case. Uh, If you study carefully uh, the, uh, the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, it talks there about the Old Testament ceremonies and how they are a symbol of New Testament realities. And uh, it says there in, in uh, Hebrews 9, verse 10, that uh, there, the, uh, let me find it in my notes here, uh, they deal only with food and drink and various washings. He's describing the the ceremonies of the Old Testament, and he says there are matters of food and drink and various washings. Now, if you knew Greek and could look up Hebrews 9, verse 10 in Greek, you would see that that's various baptismos. Various baptismos is the Greek word there. And baptismos is the Greek word from which we get the word baptism. And so the author of Hebrews is telling us that there were all kinds of baptisms in the ceremonies of the Old Testament. And uh, he goes on in that same chapter in verses 20 and 21 to describe one of those baptism ceremonies where Moses sprinkled all the articles of furniture in the tabernacle when he dedicated it and also sprinkled the congregation. And the way he did it was to take a bowl and uh, fill it with water and then take some blood from one of the sacrifices and put a little bit of the blood into a lot of water. That would thin out the blood to make it uh, disintegrate into mist uh, a lot more easily than if he had just used straight blood, which is uh, quite uh, thick. Uh, He had this bowl of water mixed with a little blood, and then he took a twig, uh, a hyssop branch. Uh, It was a twig that had several branches coming off of it, and he would tie strips of wool on each one of the little branches, and he'd have uh, 
maybe half a dozen uh, strips of wool tied to this one uh, hyssop branch. He would dip those uh, strips of wool into the water mixed with blood, and then he'd uh, hold it up and just go like this, uh, wave it uh, quickly, uh, holding on to it, not letting go. But as he jerked it uh, forward, uh, drops of spray would go, spread out over anything that was in front of him. And in that way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and he sprinkled the people. Uh, and uh, if you go back and, and read uh, more of uh, uh, Leviticus, you'll see that there were other ceremonies where little bits of blood were put on different things or sprinkled on things. Sprinkling was a, a biblical form of baptism. And when uh, the Isaiah prophesied uh, concerning the coming nations, Isaiah 52, verse 15, it says concerning the Messiah, he will sprinkle many nations. Uh, sprinkling was the way that Jews were accustomed to seeing baptism done. And I believe that if John the Baptist had introduced some new form of baptism, the, uh, his enemies who were suspicious of him and, and didn't like him, the, the Jewish leaders, they would have pounced on him right away and say, why are you dunking people in the Jordan? Plus, uh, if he had been able to dunk people in the Jordan, it might have been a dangerous thing to do. The Jordan River is something like the Rio Grande River. I don't know if you've ever seen the Rio Grande River, but I remember uh, walking across the border from El Paso, Texas, to Juarez, Mexico, when I was uh, a young man. And you went over this big bridge, and uh, below the bridge was the Rio Grande River. And uh, there was a huge cement, I think there's something similar in downtown Des Moines for the Des Moines River, a, a big cement channel to hold this uh, mighty river. And as I walked across the bridge and looked down at the river, I saw this uh, 18-inch wide river about three inches deep. It was the middle of summer, and in the summertime, the river is almost non-existent. But they had this huge channel for it because in the springtime, when the snow melts, uh, it's a raging torrent. Well, the Jordan River is much like that. It's a raging torrent sometimes of the year, and the rest of the time uh, you can hardly get your ankles wet. And uh, so uh, if he had uh, baptized when there was a lot of water, he might have drowned most of the people who he put in under the water. They would have been uh, swept away. It's far more likely that he baptized in the biblical method. It would have been impossible for the disciples on Pentecost Sunday to baptize by immersion 3,000 people in one day in the city of Jerusalem. There was only one place where they could baptize by immersion, and that was the one fountain that was the main source of water for the whole city. And you can, you can well imagine that neither the Roman authorities nor the Jewish authorities would allow uh, these 12 uh, uh, nobodies, the, the fishermen, former fishermen and tax collector, to uh, start parading 3,000 people through the primary drinking water supply in the city. And even if they had tried to dunk them all in that, in that uh, water supply, uh, 12 men uh, working with 3,000 people uh, would have taken an awfully long time, far more than a day. And so uh, it is uh, almost certain that uh, they also, on Pentecost Sunday, baptized uh, the way Moses did, by sprinkling people, uh, doing uh, lots of them at once. So uh, don't, uh, don't be envious that uh, somehow the Baptists got a better method of baptism than we do. 
uh, we have a very biblical method of baptism. But baptism is a sign. It points us to Jesus. It points us to his shed blood uh, that washes away our sins. It points us to the water of cleansing, the spirit of Christ uh, renewing us. And uh, it is a message from God to you that through faith, uh, you are a new person and belong to him and therefore ought to respond to him in faith, love, and worship. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you stoop down to our needs and show us uh, before our very eyes what you have done through us through visible signs, which also assure us that through faith what these signs represent uh, belongs to us. May we receive a baptism uh, as a message from you and rejoice and be assured that indeed our sins are washed away and our lives made new. Amen.